You're listening to the Joyful Warrior Podcast with yours truly, Tiffany Justice. Join us as we talk about the issues that are impacting you and your family in America today. Let's get started. Hey, Joyful Warriors, Tiffany Justice here from Moms for Liberty. I'm so excited to uh, welcome our next guest to the Joyful Warrior Podcast. His name is Justin Spiro, and he is a social worker in New York City Public Schools. Justin and I met on Twitter um, almost exactly a year ago, a little little over a year ago, um, and I sent him this message. I said, hi, Justin. My name is Tiffany Justice. I'm a mom to four, co-founder of Moms for Liberty, and a public school supporter. We are working to redefine the partnership between parents and schools, and I'd love to chat with you if you have time. And Justin's response was, sure with an exclamation point. And um, we've only spoken once before, really. Um, We've kind of communicated on Twitter a little bit. If you don't follow him, you can follow him um, on Twitter at um, Justin Spiro. Is it, Justin, help me out. What's your Twitter handle? I'm just looking for that right now. Oh, it's uh, J-U-S Rangers, Just Rangers. Just Rangers on Twitter. (laughs) So welcome to the Twitter, welcome to Joyful Warriors. Uh, Justin, it's so funny to be able to kind of catch up with you again. So tell us what's going on in your life. Yes, thank you, Tiffany. Yeah, welcome. Um, Things are going well. I mean, uh, it's it's nice and I, I feel like I've been fighting and advocating for over a year now, a year and a half, whatever, to get schools back to normal and now we're pretty darn close to fully normal so it's great you know getting back to a job that i've always loved since before covid absolutely so how long have you been a social worker Uh, i've been a social worker since 2009 i've been in my current role in the new city public school system since 2014. okay are you work with high school students middle school students Yes, I work in a high school. You work in a high school. Okay, great. And so um, tell us what it was like uh, in New York City with schools closed. How long were your schools closed? And, and tell us, what what have you seen? What have the effects of, of school closures and lockdowns and quarantines and masking been on kids in New York City? I mean, it's been, it was horrible. I mean, schools were officially closed for only three months, right, from March to June 2020. But I like to say they were functionally closed for 18 months because all of last school year, we were stuck with all these like bureaucratic and outdated um, rules of like kids having to be six feet apart, even after the, 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 the CDC said you didn't have to. So all year, like kids were coming in if, if they opted to be in person for like two hours a week. It was, school was a skeleton of its former self. And predictably, it was, and it was entirely predictable. Like this year, you know, the, the kids are not all right. They're coming back, readjusting to what it's like to be a, uh, to be a human in society they're readjusting to you know being in you know it with each other in person and uh all sorts of social emotional and, and mental health difficulties arise absolutely and so I, I know you're not a teacher specifically in the classroom but do you, what are you guys seeing as far as academic achievement or lack thereof are you seeing are the, the kids are coming in behind i know that's affecting them mentally right yeah i mean and i'm very you know i'm not a teacher myself but i obviously track a big part of my job is also tracking the academics of the kids and trying to you know intervene with kids especially seniors who are supposed to graduate this year who are falling behind academically and i see you know there's always been kids obviously that's why i have a job there's always been kids who have uh, been behind academically or had social emotional problems but yeah it's definitely more this year kids just aren't used aren't in the habit of like having to go through their day and whatever issues they had before COVID, if they were more of an academic struggler or more of a introvert or more of a, whatever issues they had, it would just been exacerbated by having 18 months of essentially nothingness. 
Yeah, it's craziness. And I know I'm not going to ask you to comment too much on it, but um, as of today, I saw that the mayor of New York City has COVID. Uh, toddlers are still being masked in New York, which I'm just going to personally say I think is a crime against children. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think this idea of masking our babies at, at the, the most crucial, one of the most crucial times of their lives in child development, their toddler years, um, is just uh, gross to me. And you know I've always been a big unmask our kids uh, fighter. So um, I know still some work to do in New York City, but hopefully we're finally getting there where every child in America will will not be forced to mask. Um, So Justin, you work as a social worker in public schools. Tell me, what is your job description? What does that mean? Uh, It's hard. I probably would need like like a double-sided resume to put it all, like put it all down. Um, I guess most broadly speaking, I, I think of it as like, you know, I used to work as a therapist in private practice as well as for an agency where I had, you know, a set number of uh, 30 clients. And those 30 kids I saw once a week for therapy. Now, I think the best way of thinking about it as a school social worker is that the, the client is the school. It, is, it, and that means, yes, the meeting with some kids individually, some in a group setting, going into classrooms and doing presentations on various topics of, you know, mental health, socio-emotional wise, uh, but it also means like consulting with teachers when teachers are having a hard time with a kid who's displaying mental health issues and giving them advice and consultation and, and you know, helping dev- devise lesson plans that they could then turn key and, and give on their own, even without a mental health background. Uh, and then of course, a crisis could come up and all those plans that I was, you know, planning on doing that day go out the window and I deal with whatever case of, if it's suicidal or behavior or thoughts or abuse or whatever comes up in the moment in a school. Yeah. And so, you know, kids are coming into school and I've worked in public schools and I know that there are our children who are coming into schools that are struggling with things in their lives that um, many of us would just not even begin to even possibly imagine. Um, and so, um, I know that you probably deal with a really wide range of issues that children struggle with in their lives. Um, so can you, not obviously getting specific about any one child, but can you tell us, you said suicidal at age, like where, 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 are the, where, where does it start? Where does it stop? Does it stop? Like what are the boundaries of your job in a child's life? Um, I mean, in terms of the types of issues I see, I see everything, right? Like you see the depression, the anxiety, and yes, I think that's definitely been heightened after coming back from the COVID shutdowns and uh, um, and all that stuff. There's, there's trauma, so you have PTSD. You have aggressive behaviors, which often, especially in, in, in males and you know teenage boys, often like depression is masked, no pun intended, um, but is masked as like anger or aggressive behavior. And so kids, you know, trying to control themselves that way. ADHD, kids being, you know, off focus. Um, but yeah, and then it gets more extreme in some cases where kids are self-harming, um, whether it be cutting themselves or, or even thinking about suicide or God forbid, attempting suicide and intervening and, and making sure that um, that kids are safe in that regard. Um, and then dealing with whatever going on outside of school, right? Like there could be abuse or neglect situations where not just as a social worker, but every adult who works in a building is a mandated reporter if they detect or suspect any kind of abuse or neglect going on in the home. So let's talk um, about, can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Okay. So, 
Um, you're probably familiar with this House Bill 1557. It's called Parental Rights and Education in Florida. Um, it was just passed and signed into law, and it kind of covers um, some different areas uh, of education. It said that gender identity and sexual orientation um, instruction shouldn't happen in grades K through 3. But then it also talked a little bit about the fact that schools have a requirement to strengthen the relationship between the parent and the child and to um, help to facilitate and encourage those conversations for children to, to reach out to their parents and to be speaking to them about different changes that might be happening in their lives. But then it also did require schools to make parents aware of mental health changes in that child's life. And I know as a social worker, I've seen on Twitter, you have pushed back a little bit against some people that are, um, that have been supportive, I guess, of the idea that, you know, parents should be involved in, um, knowing what's being discussed uh, by a child at school. And so um, I want to kind of jump into that if we can, because I know that's kind of like the biggest issue right now, I think, is this boundary between school and home. And every experience I've had with you and talking to you or watching you, I, I think you, you have a very healthy respect for parents and the role of parents in the child's life. Um, and, and so maybe you could just speak to that a little bit. Where, where, as a social worker in school, when you have kids who may be coming to you to discuss different issues that are happening in their lives, um, where does the parent fit into that for you? So thank you. Uh, so yeah, I, the, I, the ideal, of course, is to get the parent involved. In fact, I view that as a big part of my job. I know I, I always say to the kids and the parents, like, I don't live with you. You live with, um, I see you six hours a day for 180 days a year. Um, I can so well, let me start from the top, right? Like, so there are certain situations that no matter what, of course, a parent's going to be informed, right? If a child's thinking about suicide or self you know, cutting themselves, anything that, you know, that involves like imminent, like physical danger. And that's the line I use when I explain that to the kids. I say, hey, I, I don't live with you at home. I, your parent needs to be involved in this to make sure you're safe the other 18 hours a day on the weekends, et cetera. Um, with regard to other things, right? So, so most things that kids t tell me, especially the teenagers I work with, um, do stay confidential. With meaning that if there's if it's not suicide or self harm or anything else extreme like that, that and if a child says, "Mister, I'm telling you this, but I don't want anyone else to know, my teachers or parents," then I am required to keep that private. Um, but my goal is to have the child open up to their parents. I'm not trying to replace the parents. I know, you know, they live with their parents. That is a, it's, it's good for the child's mental health and, and for the whole family dynamic for them to be more open. And that, and that's about what, let's say a kid has depression or is feeling depressed or anxious, but there's no suicidal thoughts, nothing, no imminent self-harm. And the kid's not ready to tell the parents about how they're feeling emotionally yet. Um, one line I often hear, and please feel free to cut me off whenever I'm just you know, thinking of a, couple of things you know one line i often hear from kids is like i don't want to burden my parents they're going through so much already i don't want them to have to worry about my depression and i tell kids you know parents are usually know their kids well and they probably see something wrong with you and don't know what it is and they probably feel less burdened and less worried if they actually knew if you open up to them they knew what was going on and you know and you're not a burden because you're their child and they love you and they want to know what's going on yeah right so those are things i would say to the child privately I wouldn't then, when the second they walk out the door, pick up the phone and call the parent and say everything the kid just said, because that would break their trust. So right. I'd rather have the child tell the parent him or herself a few weeks from now, again, when there's no imminent threat of suicide or anything, let the child tell the parent about the depression on their own time in a few weeks. That way they still trust me 
and they have that relationship with the parent that they've improved themselves. Okay. So, and, and I can understand that. And I, and I think most parents would say, you know, having a, an adult in the school that is helping to support their kids, but keeping the parents, you know, at the forefront of that kid's life is important. And I, and I don't think, to be honest, I mean, perhaps, you know, and hopefully I'll hear from some parents from my personal perspective. I mean, you know, the idea if my child was, was dealing with something and if, a te- if, if they talk to a teacher about it, um, I, I can understand that you'd want to give the child the chance to kind of come to work through some of that on their own as long as you didn't see that the child was at risk in some way. So I can understand that. Is that um, – so that's a decision you're making. Is that mandated by New York City public schools? Because I think a lot of the, what I'm seeing right now and what parents are seeing across the country are there are things that are happening in these schools where schools are actively working to keep secrets from parents about things that parents are very concerned about. And one of those things would be gender ideology or gender transition. Um, and so I saw a thing from New York City schools that said, um, you know, what do you, what do you want to be called? Do you have a different name you want to be called? What are your pronouns? What name or pronouns do you prefer your teachers use with your parents? And so that is, is setting off some alarms for parents. So can we talk about that for a second sure okay sure. so what do you sure. what are your thoughts about this let's talk about this gender transition stuff because i've got some very specific examples justin that uh should should really throw off some alarms for parents well i think look i, I would say the same thing i started with a i guess a softball example of depression a, a less controversial one but I, I would apply the same principle to a child who comes into my office and says um you know say a child who was born you know assigned male at birth and, and says you know, I've, I've always known I'm really female and I, you know, never told anyone and you, you're my counselor now for the past few months. I trust you. I wanted to let you know. Um, so I guess there's different levels of it, right? If it's a child coming out privately to a counselor, they haven't even told their friends or teachers and don't want to, then that's for sure a situation where I am not outing them. I'm not telling anyone else. I am talking through the child, um, talking with the child, talk, helping them talk through however they're feeling. Uh, again, with the goal of having them come out and speaking to their parents. Um, and yes, because I, of the parents' rights, but that's actually my secondary reason. My primary reason, it's actually better for the child if they have the, like their parents in the loop. So for the child's sake, and then yes, also for the parents' sake, I want them to talk to their parents. But that's, that's something that I would definitely you know help push for. What's so your requirement in the schools though? What is, what is the public school system? Cause these are government schools. I'm not going to, you know, I'll yeah, be honest with yeah. you. They are government schools. And, and so what does, what does your school tell you is, is, is the, are, so it, we don't in New York city and I don't know if it's a state thing or a city thing, but we do not, um, we do not out children to parents, whether they're gay, transgender, um, questioning, bisexual. Oh, but certainly it doesn't say that in the guidelines that you have. It doesn't say don't out kids. So what does it, what does it say? Like when you, because I think it goes I'm further than sure, just I mean, coming out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm gay, pretty right? sure it, right, whether it be gay or transgender, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I haven't seen it in writing. I mean, for me, it's been such a big part of my life in terms of, you know, LGBT advocacy, working with kids. I, I, I wouldn't even need it to be written, but I'm pretty sure it, you know, there is, it is very strict that we are not allowed to out kids to their parents. But to get to the crux of your point, I, I do tell kids, if a kid comes to me and says, hey, I want to be called by the other pronouns instead of he, him, I want to go by she, her in school, and I want to go by a female name instead of a male name, um, and I don't want my parents to know. Um, so that is under, like, yeah, under New York City schools policy, that is something that we, we, we are to respect. But what I do say to kids from a practical basis, I say, like, please be aware, like, 
your parents will probably find out. If there's a thousand kids in the school and your parents are friends with some of the other kids' parents, the best way for them to find out is probably not like, you know, secondhand or third hand. So that is a conversation I will have with kids, not not to tell them that they're not allowed to do that, but if they want to have it go by a different name in school, realize the ramifications that it might get back to their parents. And that's another way of me saying like, let's maybe we can try to invite, involve your parents sooner rather than later. Okay. I can, I mean, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be open-minded here and think about this. I, as a parent, I have a real concern about the fact that, you know, at that point you're now encouraging a child to lead a double life. I understand that you're, that, that it's not your intention, but I can only imagine, I mean, you look at people leading double lives in general, right? At the stress that it puts on even an adult. So for a child to be using different names, different pronouns at school and to be keeping, for that to be kept from the parent, um, and, and we'll just leave kind of the transgender ideology and the gender ideology out of it for a second, because I think there's a, another conversation for us to have um, a little bit in a little bit about some of the contagion aspects of, of what's happening right now in America regarding gender ideology from my perspective. But are you concerned from a mental health standpoint, right? Because, you know, I'm going to be honest and tell you, we are seeing all over the country, Justin, schools keeping these secrets from parents, starting children in social gender transition programs, and it is having horrible effects on these children. In fact, in Clay County, a little girl tried to kill herself in a bathroom. Um, and the parents at that point found out she had been in a gender transition program at the school and they had no idea about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess I would say, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, right? It's like there's many factors here and what's leading to what, what I guess, combination of factors are leading to those, those, you know, suicidal behaviors. I mean, I don't know what exactly what programming. Like, there's no program in our school. It's not. It's like a kid says, "Hey, I, I want to go by this gender, that gender," and we respect what they say. Is there are there policies? Are there like any procedures or policies? Because what we've seen is it's that there are forms that there are actually like there's like six pages of forms that a child goes through to fill out with like assistant principals, social worker at the school, and the parent it doesn't even know anything about it. No, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely not six pages of forms. I mean, it's kind of a more informal thing that the child. And it's kind of just, it's not us encouraging the child to do anything. It's validating wherever the child's at. And I think that's also an important point that validating, just, just acknowledging what a child says without contradicting them and saying, I hear you, I respect what you're saying, is not like encouraging. It's not locking a child in, so to speak, to a set identity, whether it be gay or trans or whatever. It's allowing the child to just be who the child is and if the child turn, realizes later in life that actually they're not gay or they're not trans or maybe they're bi or maybe they're straight or whatever, then then they could – there's not, nothing irreversible has been done. Okay, I, so I like let's – yeah, no, but but, yeah. There, but in some cases there are irreversible things that have been done. I mean, you know, I read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. So we're talking at this point now in America of medical transition being something that is a go-to. It's so that's the standard of care, right? So, that's not, so then, parents are, then parents are involved, right? Like – Children under 18 um, are not, at least from my experience, I can't speak to all 50 states and every jurisdiction Sure, in America, I understand that. I think but from my experience, that. yeah, like if a child, before a child could even be prescribed hormones, they have to be in therapy. And to be in therapy as a minor, for, for any reason, right, your parents have to be involved and get consent. And the therapy- Not in every state. The, <laughs> not in every well, state, unfortunately. Well, a, actual, like therapy where it's being billed to your insurance, right? Your insurance under your parents. So if they're billing your insurance for therapy, uh, the parent's going to be aware, or if not, it's on the it's on the bill. Like 
So the copay or whatever, like whatever. So actual bona fide therapy that goes through medical insurance, parents have to consent for. Um, and usually it's a therapist who has training in this area and is connected with whatever sexual health clinic um, it would be involved in giving in prescribing hormones. And there's procedures in place that the child has to be in therapy for X amount of time. And the therapist has to assess that they're of sound mind and this is actually how they're feeling. And there's no other mental health disorder impacting that their um, way of identifying themselves. And then again, once again, with parental consent, hormones might, might, might begin. So I think that you're right that that is supposed to, that is the way that things, uh, I, I guess, are meant to be happening. That is not what is happening um, in many places across our country and certainly not in Canada from what we've seen. Um, so th- I think that that is something that, you know, I, I think we all have to keep in mind. But I do understand what you're saying as far as that that's the way that that, that type of assessment should be going and, and, and mental health assessment being the leading thing that happens in all of that. But, you know, so we talk about this double life. My question would be, and I think a lot of parents would ask, if someone, if a child was anorexic and they came and they said, you know, I I feel like I'm really overweight and fat and disgusting and um, they're, they're starving themselves or they're bulimic and you know that they're throwing up, right? And they're, and they're, and, and, and they want to be thin and and anorexia and bulimia are, are two ways that you can do that. I mean, that's, you know, and we saw, we have seen contagions in the past amongst girls um, regarding eating disorders. And so kind of looking at it from that perspective, I mean, you know, there are long-term repercussions to that, to a child, you know, being anorexic or bulimic. Of course, of course. Um, yeah. But, you know, so so I think parents are kind of looking at this gender stuff and saying, like, my child, and, and let's talk about this contagion part of it, because I would have to imagine you've seen a rise in gender identity or gender dysphoria in school, in your schools in the past 10 years, because we've seen it all over the country. I mean, honestly, and maybe, I mean, I can only speak for my school, but honestly, you know, the school about a thousand kids at a time, right? We know that the rates, the prevalence of transgender individuals in America is whatever point, whatever percent, point two percent, whatever it is, it's used under one percent. Um, so you would expect in a school of a thousand that there'd be oh, a couple kids, maybe a handful of kids at most at any given time. And that's kind of been my experience over, the, I've been in the school for eight years and it's often been a couple kids in the school at a time, maybe one, maybe three, given depending on the year. Um, it hasn't really risen. There's a separate um, phenomenon that I think is more political, cultural based of people identifying, um, or maybe not political even. Uh, there's a separate phenomenon that's more sexuality based, right? Of people identifying as pansexual or bisexual, unsure. And I think and there's a fluidity, fluidity that people are allowed to um Kids, you know, kids feel like they have the freedom to kind of experiment with how they identify sexual orientation wise. And maybe that also translates a little bit into gender identity because pansexual would mean that maybe you're open to dating someone who's transgender as well, even though you're not. It gets very complicated. But I think that is just, you know, kids feeling more free to express who they who they really are or who they might be. And it, I, I, don't know, I think it's my long way of saying that. I don't think any of that is irreversible. A lot of people who might identify as pansexual or bisexual, you know, may or or just having different sexual identities or gender identities may wind up living what appears to be a normative heterosexual life ten years from now. 
Um, I think it's great that people are able to, you know, explore different identities, but that that's not going to necessarily lock them into any one of those identities when they get older. Yeah, I can understand. But so can we talk about the gender ideology or the gender identity stuff for a second? Because I, I it seems to be, to me, very regressive in a lot of ways because it seems to be based on stereotypes. When I'm looking at some of the, the instruction that's happening in these elementary school grades, Justin, basically what they're saying is, you know, if you like certain things um, that are things that would traditionally be like stereotypical girl things, then maybe you're a girl inside. Maybe you, you were born in the wrong body. And then they're saying to girls, you know, if you don't like to wear dresses or cut your hair short or you don't, then maybe you were born in the wrong body and maybe you're a boy and that seems to be very regressive I mean did it I, I, I felt like we had gotten away from a lot of those stereotypes and I think that's one of the things with this gender stuff that's the most concerning yeah I mean again I don't work in elementary school I I would definitely not suggest to anyone right at any age that maybe like that you are this you aren't that I wouldn't tell a kid gender identity wise, hey, maybe you're um, transgender, maybe you're cisgender, right? I mean, the opposite of transgender. Um, or I wouldn't say maybe you're gay. Like, I would never tell a kid, even a kid who, you know, maybe stereotypically gay, or I would never say, hey, maybe you're gay, or maybe you're, like, I, you, you know, you let kids figure things out on their own and identify however they want. So I don't understand. I, I, I have to see more about that. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm I think that's where the grooming to, stuff yeah. is coming from though. You know, I, I know that we, and I, and I watch you on Twitter and, and I think you're in, you've all, you're always very respectful and insightful. And I think you take time to understand. And I don't mean to ask you about anything like, you know, obviously these are, diff- these are interesting conversations and topics that we're talking about. And there's a lot of intricacy because they happen in different ways and they involve people. So each specific instance also has a lot of, you know, right. different facets to it. Right. Um, but I think that's where the grooming comment comes from a lot though, is because, you know, you have adults who seem to be kind of pushing their own ideology or thought process on kids. And I have to tell you, I watched the, that bill HB 1557 be debated. And I thought I'm a mom of four. And I heard what I heard was from some legislators that are gay, basically saying that me as a straight parent, I can't be a guide for my child in life, that somehow because they're gay and my kid might be gay, that they need to be some type of like a sexual spirit guide for them, that I can't raise them properly, understand them, or keep have a safe space for them in my home. And I can't think of anything more damaging to say to a kid. No, I would never say it to a kid. Again, like I, like I started off with, the goal is let's say if it's a gay kid, to get that kid to open up to the parent. And and what I always say to kids, whether it be gay kids or trans kids, um, what I always say is that, like, you have to, like, kind of give your parents time because it's I, treat, I think of it like a parallel process. You, the, you meaning the kid, may have known you were gay since you were uh, 12, 13, whatever. Now you're 16 sitting in my office and you're first telling your parents that maybe it took you a few years to accept yourself. So your parents need that same time to kind of get used to and understand <coughs> – understand um what's going on here um but yeah i I mean parents could straight parents can be very supportive to it shouldn't even need to be said right but straight parents can be very supportive to their gay gay and trans kids and that's that's the goal um but i think the thing with grooming is what i find offensive is that that the word grooming implies intent right so we could we could disagree and it sounds like I may even be agreeing with you about some of these more extreme things that are happening in some elementary schools. But we could agree or disagree anywhere along the spectrum of like what should be done or not done. But like it, grooming implies that like a school or an individual teacher is like intending 
to prime a child for sexual abuse. And as a social worker who's worked with many kids who unfortunately have been victims of abuse in, you know, in their life, you know, it just seems so offensive that like these are people who are like downright evil, who intentionally sexually abuse children. And to say that teachers, maybe maybe they're you might think they're misguided. We could agree to disagree. Or like I said, we even agree on some of these things. Um, but to use the word grooming, which implies like intent more intentionally sinister, like evilly send, setting them up to be sexually abused is just to me beyond the pale. OK, so I can understand. I, I, I hear what you're saying. But then some of the things that I'm seeing, this, this is where this this is why this important conversation is important, because everything I have seen from you is very much you're doing your job as you see you need to do it. And as the law allows for you to do it. Um, and um, again, I've never seen you, you know, I, I think you've always seemed to be very an advocate for parents being an important part of their kids' lives. But then when I look at queer theory and some of the things that are being kind of taught in some of the schools, queer theory absolutely supports legalizing pedophilia. And so we're seeing some of this- In, queer in what sense? In that, I mean, it, it literally, set, I mean, it, it supports and opens up the idea that this LGBTQIA plus queer theory idea of, you know, children are sexual beings that just haven't been allowed to release themselves yet. And that given the opportunity that they should be able to have more agency in their sexual development in their lives. And so from parents' perspective, I think parents are looking and say, no, my child sleeps with a teddy bear and I don't need them being introduced. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, I saw that like, maybe it's the same video you're thinking of. I saw some like extremist video from some like very left-wing university of a professor espousing that um but that is like nowhere that is not mainstream that is completely eschewed and condemned by any mainstream lgbtq um authority or organization or resource uh pedophilia is um equally heinous and wrong whether it's from a gay or straight perspective regard that's not a gender thing that's not a sexuality thing those are non-consenting children children of any gender or or any gender cannot consent to be with any adult of any background whatsoever period um so no pedophilia has no place in the lgbtq movement or spectrum or connection to it and and i and i and i don't think and 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 i don't i agree with you i think you're right but i do have a question if we are have and 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 you know, if you want to answer it, great. I do have a question about if kids, you know, I I have a friend, his name is Michael, and he said to me the other day, we were talking, and he said, Tiffany, he said, I was a, a more uh, feminine boy when I was growing up. He's a gay man now, has a partner, married. And he said, but if someone had told me when I was younger that um, because I was more feminine or liked to do certain things in a different way that I had actually, that I was actually born in, a, in the wrong body and that I was meant to be a girl. He said, I would be a very unhappy person. He said, I went through puberty and I'm a man who loves men. And, um, yeah. you know, so he's watching this. So is there a concern in the LGBTQ? And I'm just going to say lesbian and gay community. Is there a concern that perhaps these children who may be gay are, are kind of being told that they're being born in the wrong body instead of just accepting that they have a different sexual orientation or preference? I, mean, I haven't seen that, but I think I think it is important to distinguish, right? Like gender identity and sexual orientation are two separate things. And gender identity usually comes about ages three, four, you know, three and four, or even younger, those are the ages at which 
most of us, I think like myself and yourself included, you realize that we were male and female respectively. So it makes sense. It's also the age when someone who's transgender starts to realize that he or she is in the wrong body. And just like all their friends are identify, identifying with the body they were born into, they realize that the body they were born into is, is not for them. But sexual orientation coincides with feelings of sexuality around puberty, right? And so those are things that come at different, different points in time. So no, I don't think any five-year-old should be told if you're stereotypically this way, you're probably in the wrong body. Um, of course not. Um, but teaching that, you know, some people feel that way or there are some people who, you know, let's say there was a transgender kid who obviously no medical intervention, but an eight-year-old who said, you know, who's been saying not just for a week or for a month, but their, their whole life pretty much, that, you know, that they want to wear a dress, that they, they're born with male body parts, but they identify as a female. Um, you have to have some conversation with the class, right, to explain why or that your friend's child is uh your, your child's friend whatever is, is dressing differently um but no I, I don't think we should you should never tell a child themselves like you're who plant the idea in the head that directly you're probably transgender you're probably gay that's not there's no that's so, not something that we should so do. that we bring so that brings me to like the gingerbread person right because a lot of people are saying oh this is not being taught in kids k through three it is absolutely being taught in grades K through three. I have seen the evidence of it, Justin. And so I ask you, as a licensed social worker, as someone who works in public schools, what age should we be talking to kids about this? And grades K through three, we're talking about five through eight-year-olds. Is this something that public schools should even be delving into? Um, I mean, it's hard for me to comment in a vacuum. I have to see like the exact lesson plan. I think that there is a place for saying, you know, I mean, clearly they know the difference between a boy and a girl from age like three or four, right? So talking about how some people identify one way or another, um, again, not in the more aggressive form of like, if you don't meet this stereotype, then you're probably in the wrong body. Like that's completely inappropriate. But depending on the lesson plan, I, I guess I would say, you know, possibly. But I think it's also important to point out that as, as progressive as society has become, it is still way, way, way more easier to not be gay, to not be transgender, even in 2022, even in the most liberal parts of America, right? Even in the most liberal towns, if you're in middle school or in high school, there's still going to be uh, snickers and jokes about like, oh, that kid's gay. It's still easier to be straight. It's still easier to be cisgender, to not be transgender. So I feel like if a kid learns about something uh, and then like wonders, hmm, is this like, no one's going to be convinced just from like, through osmosis about learning about a topic to all of a sudden become gay or transgender. No, and I understand that. But what we are seeing in schools is that it tends to be a thing that kids do together so that you'll get groups of kids who decide that they are gay and that they're all, that in this is elementary school I'm talking about. What we've seen in elementary school, middle school, is and, and, and this rise of this rapid onset gender dysphoria where these girls are, are, you know, in groups of girls seem to be choosing to identify as a different gender even when there's no history of that. As you said, you know, what you've seen, what we've right. seen in history with gender dysphoria is that children present as early as, you know, two, three, four years old. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden we're having this, and it feels like a contagion, Justin. And what I've heard, and, and I kind of want to get your take on it, is that a couple things. When these girls decide to come out as trans, they often, about 35% of the girls um, are on the autism spectrum, 
Um, and then these are often kids who um, really kind of search for a place and a sense of belonging. But when they come out and identify as transgender, they um, are what I've heard the terminology used is kind of love bombed, where they are kind of accepted mm. into this um, kind of like community. Group. Yeah, this community that, you know, is, you know, obviously lovely for them because they feel like they're being celebrated in many ways. But the, the concern being that it's really hard to walk away from that, right? How do you make a mistake about something? How do you change your mind about something um, that perhaps as you get older and as puberty kicks in, you know, I think changes. And, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, uh, being a middle school girl and having your body change in that way is not the easiest thing to have happen. Right. Well, I mean, I, look, every case is different. And of course, you can't make sweeping policy. Someone on the, on the autism spectrum, right? Like my, my, uh, my brother's autism, you know, I, I, you know, and I've worked with a lot of kids who have autism. Everything is, everything's different, right? And for every individual and, what a po the policies that work for neurotypical kids may have to be adjusted on an individual basis, working with someone who is, who has autism and, and figuring out what's best for him or her. But more broadly speaking, for someone who does not have special needs for if there is, if there's a group of a friend group, that's all identifying in a certain way, my question would be like 10 years from now, are they all, are they all still identifying in that way or only the ones that, genuinely felt it at that moment and right that's kind of where and also it gets really complex when you don't just talk about transgender as like male to female female to male but we talk about these concepts like non-binary gender non-conforming which are these also in the transgender family if you will but not necessarily meaning that they want to physically medically change their body and so, and there's a lot of that going on as well. So it's hard to really, I guess, know, you know, it's hard to know what each, I, it's hard to speak from generally about these no, things. No, I, I think guess. you're right. It's, it's it is hard right, yeah. to, do, and I'm not asking you to generalize. I mean, listen, I think you're really brave to have a conversation with me. Um, so I appreciate it. I really do. And, and so, you know, finally, I, I guess, Justin, you know, you and I aren't going to agree on everything. Um, I think you do have a really beautiful heart and I appreciate again, you talking to me, um, about this. Um, what can parents do, um, to create a, a good positive relationship with their child's school? There are many parents who, um, may be concerned about some of the things that are happening in public schools right now, and from my opinion, rightly so, but public school may be the option for them that is working the best. And so, um, you know, I think what one of the goals of Moms for Liberty really is to create relationships and to build those relationships so that there is some trust between school and home because, um, you know, we don't want anyone, we don't co-parent with the government, we don't want people raising our children, but we certainly recognize teachers have a, a huge, spend, as you said, a lot of time with these kids and can have a huge impact, good and bad. And so um, what's your advice if parents are concerned um, about some of these things that they're seeing in the news um, and they want to understand um, how to build a good relationship with their school so that their um, wants and their um, goals as parents are respected when their child is in that school? So sure. So I'll, you know, I'll say two things. I, I, I'll answer that question and a question I thought you were going to ask, ask when you started talking. I think, you know, reaching out to the schools proactively, to the school social worker, the school counselors, when the kids start as fr in freshman year or, you know, whenever their first year of school is, 
introduce themselves. I'm always thrilled when I, you know, parents reach out to me or have, you know, want, want to talk about things, share, have their own concerns. And, you know, I invite the, I always invite the parents in to, you know, share what information they can with me. And I could then also better assist their child if I already know the parents, if I already am more confident about how a parent will respond to, to a certain issue. And, oh, yeah, I talked to your mom already. And I, I know she's super, you know, pro mental health and pro very supportive of you. I could say that not just hypothetically, but actually knowing it. So I get to know your school community, right? Get to know I, the same thing I say to kids. I say to kids all the time, hey, don't wait for that day when you're feeling really down or depressed. You know, come say hi to me um, any random day just so I know you. Let's we'll have a five minute conversation about your favorite sports teams or wh- whatever so that we have that working relationship. And then you can come back to me when your first conversation won't be when you're feeling really down about something. But I guess to end off, what I'd really say to parents is create that supportive environment for your children so that if your child is LGBTQ or thinks that he or she is, it's not the question won't even come up about the, whether the school told you or not, because you'll know first, because you will create that environment in your home where your child will hopefully feel comfortable telling you even before they tell the school. Um, and the way to do that is just to watch the way we speak. I know the big thing on Twitter um, I, well, a few a couple of weeks ago, was, I forget the name, uh, Leah Thomas, the transgender swimmer who won in, in Pennsylvania. And, and if I were a transgender kid or even a gay kid, because you know, it is all kind of lumped together as part of the same community. If I were a gay or transgender 14-year-old sitting in the home of a parent who was really upset about that from fairness perspective, I wouldn't know or care about the details of swim, female swimming and this and that. All I would hear would be someone potentially saying something negative about a transgender person. I, I wouldn't get the nuance as a 14-year-old scared gay or transgender kid. So I, I know I, I tweeted about that and I got really jumped on, but I think that's an important point. Like, have whatever opinion you want. That's a very like nuanced, like like you know, specific issue about sports and swimming and whatever. But to like really flood the zone in your home with supportive messaging that like you support gay people, you support transgender people in the media, in the news, however it comes up, or even just explicitly saying to your kids throughout their childhood, we accept you however you are. We want you to come to us and tell us how you are. We will accept you. We will not kick you out of the house. Like I know it's certainly not to be said. I know Tiffany, you would never kick your kids out of the house no matter what. Right. But some kids, it, unfortunately it's a reality in America that a large percentage of homeless youth are LGBTQ because they felt they were not accepted by their parents. Well, and, and I'm going to, and, and yeah. I know, and I know that has happened, but I, I will push back and I will tell you this. It is 2022. And I think the vast majority of parents do love their children and accept their children. I'll tell you, Justin, I have a real concern that schools are telling kids that uh, home isn't a safe place and that they're setting kids up to believe that they're safe at school and that that's where they should be sharing some of these things. And I do think by schools encouraging parent kids to keep secrets from parents, it does set up a situation that makes parent kids um, wary, right? If kids, if, if the schools are saying immediately, you know, you parents may not be accepting of you coming out, you're planting that seed right, in that child's mind. And as a parent, I don't want anyone telling my child that they aren't safe at home or that they can't share something with me. Um, so, and, and, and I'm very communicative with my children, but, you know, other people have raised their children in different ways, right? And so I just continue to wonder as we move forward, you know, the boundaries between school and home, right? Um, and I think it's tricky. And I think 
Um, we're seeing a lot of questions um, come up about that. Um, any last words on social emotional learning? Justin, social emotional learning has changed a lot in the past 10 years. And I know you're speaking from a high school perspective. Um, but again, just from the perspective of someone who works in schools um, and for parents who kind of want to know what's being taught to those ki- to their children and may not feel like it's that transparent, um, advice with administrators and building relationships with administrators to be able to get that information. You mean information about like for the parents to find out what the curriculum is Correct. around that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that should not, that should for sure not be a secret. That's not even something that's being taught, like not or being spoken about in the privacy of a counseling office. If it's being said in front of 30 students in the classroom, for sure parents should be privy to that lesson plan if, if they, if they want. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, so I guess that would be my comment on that, that I, I don't see any reason why that would ever be a secret from parents. So parents should fight for transparency in curriculum, that parents fighting for that isn't a bad thing and we need to continue to encourage that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something, like teachers for sure don't want to be like micromanaged. They have to like send a copy of every worksheet they give to, to the home to the parents. But definitely, I, I mean, I'm, you're probably less interested in, you know, which topic in calculus was covered today versus tomorrow as opposed to socio-emotional stuff. But I think like, I, I would speak to, you know, with the parents at my school, how we speak about mental health issues. We speak about uh, consent when it comes to sexual activity. We speak, speak to uh, rape culture and how to make sure everyone feels safe and that there no one is being taken advantage of or sexually assaulted and how people, especially women, but how people of all genders have their, you know, their rights, um, whatever. I mean, whatever, whatever topics are, right? I'm just saying those are things that I have no problem. And I would openly say to any parents, you know, when the conversation comes up. Well, Justin, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast and being so open and honest about the work that you're doing um, in New York City public schools and how you're working with kids. I think um, the real takeaway here is just making sure that parents are having good communication with their kids and with their schools. Um, Public school and the communication between parents and and teachers should be positive. Um, And not every situation will be positive, but certainly the interaction should be positive. It shouldn't be adversarial. Um, We are all working, hopefully, towards the the same goal, which is to set these kids up for success in life, make sure that they're learning what they need to learn. So again, Justin, thank you for coming on today. Um, Just really appreciate you being um, here for the conversation. My pleasure, Tiffany. Hey, Joyful Warriors. So now we have a really exciting part of the podcast. Normally we do chat with Pat, but I'm joined by two people from Kenosha, Wisconsin, our chair and vice chair of our Moms for Liberty chapter in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they are so excited because they've had some great things happening in their uh, community. And so I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Amber Infacino and Amanda Nedweski, um, again, chair and vice chair of the Kenosha County uh, Moms for Liberty chapter. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Hello. Hello. So tell me what has been happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin over the past two weeks? We've had a huge cultural shift in Kenosha County. So Kenosha County is a, a for, for many decades was a manufacturing town um, of about 150,000 in the county and has always typically voted blue. And um, in recent years has become more purple, especially uh, due to population changes. And we 
victoriously shifted our county government, our county leadership, our county board to um, conservative in the April 5th election that happened two weeks ago. And we also were able to um, put a female Republican in the county executive seat for the first time ever in our county. That's very exciting. That was all with help from Moms for Liberty. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So tell me, Amber, you're the chair. Um, When did you start your Moms for Liberty chapter? Uh, July 28th last year was when I signed the official uh, join letter. Okay, and and what has the progress been since then? Uh, We've been growing every day, and the uh, empowerment and education that we've been um, able to provide for the local community has been great. Uh, just encouraging parents to get involved, sign up for committees. We're just creating a small army day by day. And again, we've really grown just since we, we kind of got official uh, the first week of uh, August, uh, broke into school board meetings. And so since then, uh, we've just, we've really grown every day. So Amanda, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, elections across the country happen at different times. So Kenosha had their school board elections and county elections um, this past in April 5th. I know on May 17th, we've got uh, elections in um, uh, New York happening. Not every school board election happens on the same you know election cycle as other elections across the country, um, which is interesting right. and something that we have to pay attention to because I think it's really allowed um, people to kind of sometimes not be as engaged in some of those elections. Would you agree? Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, you, what was the turnout like for this election? Uh, turnout for these spring elections tends to be extremely low. It tends to be less than 20% of registered voters in the county. Um, I have not seen the official numbers but as of yet, but the turnout was uh, way above average. Let's put it that way. I think it was in the 20, at least 25 to 30%. Um, again, haven't seen the official numbers on that, but we have uh, every year there's, we have seven people on the school board and there's there's an election for school board every single April. And when there's a midterm year, there tends to be a little bit higher turnout. And of course, when there's a presidential primary, there tends to be higher turnout. But on the off years, you know, when there isn't a big ticket uh, race on the ballot, you know, it really goes undetected and unnoticed. And oftentimes, you know, people just don't vote. They don't even know there's an election happening. Um, and because it's not on a national scale, well, everybody has their local elections at the same time or on the same day. They, you know, it's almost planned like that on purpose, it seems, so that it it flies under the radar. And Moms for Liberty in Kenosha really, really worked hard to get the vote out on this and and their efforts paid off. That's awesome. So tell me, I know you've expressed to me before, you've said that being a part of Moms for Liberty, being able to bring people together under that umbrella and, and, and the group has been important. So tell me a little bit about that. You were working as individuals before. What changed? Perception is what changed. Um, So, you know, I had gotten involved in early 2020. I know that our group leadership had been doing things as individuals or maybe with a couple of parents here and there, but without a name, without an identity, without an organization to say we are organized and we have members, you know, you sort of are the the, the crazy mom with the tinfoil hat at the podium until all of a sudden, you trade you trade that conspiracy theorist hat for a Moms for Liberty t-shirt, and they start taking you seriously. Why you do know? you think and that then, is, though? So I would imagine someone might hear that and say, oh, so, you know, you guys are conspiracy theorists who wear Moms for Liberty shirts. And that's not the case, is it? No, not at all. And no, so tell me why. Not. Why is that important? Yeah. 
Well, the first important thing was, you know, it identifies you as having a collective concern. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we it, instead of saying, I am concerned about this and I am concerned about that, it becomes a we. And when there are nine, nine we's or 15 we's in that room, in that boardroom, out of 20 people sitting there watching, the school board members are forced, whether they want to or not, to look at you and say, oh, that's not just one person, not not just one angry mom. It's a lot of people. We may have to listen to them at some point. That doesn't mean they did, <laughs> but, um, you know, but they, they reaped what they sowed. You know, we, we said, if, you, if you're not going to listen to us, we will just find people to replace you. And uh, two out of three, we did. Awesome. So what were they not listening about? What was going on in Kenosha? Because I think something that I found so interesting is that these are not unique stories, are they? We hear about some of these things happening in community after community after community across the United States. So tell me about Kenosha. What were parents concerned about? Well, of course, we were all concerned about schools being um, the, the platform of education during the, you know, the first part of the pandemic. We Our schools in Wisconsin closed on March 13th, I 13th. think. 13th, that's when they closed um, in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was March 13th, 2020. And, you know, we had to, I, as an individual parent with a, with a handful of others, fought very hard for schools to reopen in the fall of, of 2020. And they almost did not. It ended up being a hybrid uh, platform that was a huge failure. Okay, so it was it was failing everyone. It was failing teachers. It was failing students. It was failing families. It was inconsistent. It was producing poor results at best. So, of course, we were all concerned about um, not only our own children, but how this would affect the community, you know, in the long run in terms of, you know, learning loss and how that would, you know, affect us economically going forward. Um, the it, And then there was mask wearing, of course, but it was also the the deferment of people we elected they were taking their decision-making power and deferring it to other government officials whether it was the uh, local health director or maybe the state health agency and saying we take no responsibility we're not listening to voters who elected us we're blaming it on uh the, the health officer said we have to do it this way and whether or not the health officer was empowered to do so. Um, so, you know, you sort of are saying our school board electors are supposed to be, our members are supposed to be representatives of the people. And by and large, they were ignoring the popular, uh, you know, opinion of the people. They were saying, no, we're just going to. They just called us the loud bunch. Yeah, you know, the, the, band, the band of traveling moms is what we became known as. Yeah, and so, you, you know, you're not wrong. I sat on a school board where they wanted to have a medical committee and they wanted to have the hospital be a part of it and the direct Department of Health be a part of it, and I fought it really hard because I was watching in other places. Um, you were right. School board members abdicated their responsibility to bureaucrats mm-hmm. who weren't accountable to the public in any way, right? And so, zero. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so it's so interesting to me that this is what we saw happen all across the country. I can speak from Indian River County, Florida, all the way to Kenosha, Wisconsin, that we saw elected people that we thought were representing us as constituents not holding their authority to make decisions. And because they abdicated those responsibilities, we ended up with a lot of closed schools unnecessarily, masking uh, you know, for, for, for longer than it ever should have happened if it should have happened at all. And, and it's just so interesting to me that you ladies were living such a similar experience, right, in this time as so many other people across the country. 
yeah, it was, it's crazy how it was so consistent across the country, especially in urban areas. Yeah. 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 Well, I have to tell you, I'm so incredibly proud of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, of you guys um, claiming your power as parents, right? And, and, and making sure that your school board is beholden to the constituents that you serve. Um, I'm excited to see the changes that you'll be able to make there. Um, again, Amanda, congratulations on winning county board supervisor. That's huge. Um, and well, as a, it's I'm, really huge because we, we influence who the health director is. Wonderful. Yep. Wonderful. That's and, why and, I ran for that role. <laughs> wonderful. And you'll be making some changes, I guess. You'll be looking to make some changes. Well, I'll be having some influence for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so that's wonderful, right? And so this is this is this is why this is so important. This is why we do Moms for Liberty, because the truth of the matter is that this government does not work without us, does it? Nope. Amen. And so Pat always says at the end of, 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 of chat with Pat, she always says, come on, people, it's time to get off the comfy couch. And so I say that back to you. I know that everyone has, and not you and Amanda, and you, not you and, and Amber, Amanda. <laughs> but, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and, and you're thinking, how can I help? There is a way that you can help us. And we do need your help because we are fighting for the survival of America. And it's going to start and it's going to continue to happen in the backyards of, in our communities, right? It, it's making that change at that local level so that we, can ne- we never allow allow our schools to be closed in the manner that they were and for our children to shoulder the burden of adult fear and selfishness which is what we as parents saw didn't we Correct. Seat by seat, we make the change. Seat by seat, we make the change. We take back America. School board, seat by school board, seat, and sometimes county supervisor, too. Uh, Moms for Liberty moms are rocking it. Um, Thank you, Amber and Amanda, for joining us on the podcast today. Um, We're incredibly thankful for you as role models for moms across the country. And um, again, go to momsforliberty.org, click on the map, click on your state, see if you have a chapter near you. If you don't have a chapter near you, you heard Amber say she started one in her own community. You just need 10 like minds people um, and and start um, holding your school board and elected officials accountable because we need elected leaders in this country and we're proud that Moms for Liberty members are stepping up to be those leaders. Thank you guys. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. You as well. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's Joyful Warrior podcast. Join us next time. United we stand. Our children. Our choice. Our future.